Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, a podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. As elections unfold across Europe, as Britain begins the process of leaving the European Union, and as the Trump administration's policies toward Europe and its institutions take shape, the questions about Europe's role in the world and its relationship to the United States are front of mind. To help us grapple with these issues, I'm joined in the studio today by Dr. Javier Solana, a distinguished fellow at Brookings whose accomplishments and contributions are far too numerous to mention here. I'll just say that he was a member of the Spanish Parliament, a Spanish cabinet minister, including for foreign affairs, the Secretary General of NATO, European Union High Representative for Common Foreign and Security Policy, and Secretary General of the Council of the European Union. I should emphasize that this interview was conducted before the first round of France's presidential election, but Dr. Solana's comments on why a Marine Le Pen victory, which did not come to pass, would have been bad for Europe remains relevant. For additional insight into what's happening in Europe today, download and listen to my colleague Adriana Pita's interview with Constanza Stelzenmüller and Philippe Lacour on the Intersections podcast. Stay tuned after the interview for my colleague Bill Finan's chat with Bruce Jones, the Vice President and Director of Foreign Policy at Brookings, on his recent book about the Marshall Plan. And now, on with the interview. Dr. Solana, welcome back to the Brookings Cafeteria. Pleasure to be here. We last spoke in June of 2015 on the topic, Why the European Union Matters. So I encourage my listeners to go back and listen to that very excellent episode. And now we're going to talk more about why the European matters. Specifically, you wrote recently that the world needs the European Union now more than ever. Why is that the case? Well, I think that uh, the world of today is more complex. There are not only bipolar world that is used to be during the Cold War, it's a multipolar world. We have multilateral institutions that have to work properly. And to a certain extent, the European Union is a microcosm of multilateralism. So I think that this experience that we have been constructing uh, from the beginning of the European Union is really, in a way, a school of what could be done in a much more wider sense in the global community. I mean, I don't mean to replicate the European Union, but the essence is that you need to get the world less like a group of atoms that is every nation state and go more to a, a molecules, which is a, a combination of atoms that uh, by getting together, they change in a fantastic manner the capability they have to act. You can say that putting together atoms, uh, you can get as far as creating the molecule the DNA, which is life. So I don't want to be a fantasizing, but I do think that the model that the European Union was constructed is a model that has allowed for a large part of this continent in which we live, peace, development, respect for human rights. I think it's a very singular type of construction that is very difficult to find in any other part of this world. I like your metaphor of molecules and atoms since I know that you have a doctorate in physics from the University of Virginia. But now you talk about multilateralism. You also have a recent piece, I think it was in Project Syndicate, why multilateralism still matters. But now the new president in the White House, President Trump, 
seems to prefer to engage with other nations in a bilateral, you know, capital to capital kind of way, rather than engaging through multilateral institutions. How do you see the preference in the Trump administration for that kind of relationship hitting up against Europe as a multilateral institution? Well, I think that in principle that is a mistake because the slogan America first, imagine that is responded by China saying China first and by Germany saying Germany first. I mean, this is, it's a crazy proposition to run the world. I mean, we have to be in a world in which competition is healthy but not confrontation. I mean, we, we should not be in a confrontational a priori situation. And uh, that statement, in a way, is a confrontational uh, statement with the rest of the world. So I think that it's a mistake, that approach. And this approach cannot be maintained for a long period of time. And we can see it already. We can see it already if the president has learned that talking to the Chinese uh, has consequences in Libya or in Syria or in, you know, everything is interrelated. And uh, we are seeing that in a very clear, very clear manner with examples of these days. So I think that uh, we will see that that proposition is a proposition that cannot carry water. Let me go back to some of the things you said initially about the accomplishments of a multilateral Europe, peace, development. We've seen this over the last 70 years since the end of the Second World War. But do you think a lot of people today in America and elsewhere take for granted that the European project, the European Union, has established this peace and prosperity on a continent that before had seen so many terrible wars? Well, I think that we have celebrated the 60th anniversary a couple of months ago, and it's true that at the same time we have a very important member that leaves or wants to leave. Britain. The first time that that happens, uh, traditionally, was that countries that were outside the European Union wanted to be in. Uh, now we see uh, one country, not a minor country, an important country, that goes to leave. Now, could they generalize that, saying that many countries want to leave? Uh, I don't think so. I think the United Kingdom has been a very particular case. They were already out. They came in. They, so the relationship of the United Kingdom with the European Union has been complex. This referendum has shown that their majority, not a very big majority, but a majority wanted to leave. But as I said, it's, it's a country which is very, very special. And I don't think that this sentiment exists in other countries. And um, I don't see any will on anybody else to leave. On the contrary, I still think that the majority of the people in the European Union do want to stay and develop the ideas that uh, still we have to develop in the European Union. So you don't see a risk that countries such as Poland and Hungary in the eastern side of Europe might want to leave the European Union? I mean, they will consider that possibility, although they have the sentiment today that a more integrated European Union for them may not be the most attractive proposition. And remember that these countries, you have mentioned too, they are countries that have a very complicated history. Since the First World War, they have been countries with very difficult history. And after the Second World War, they didn't benefit from the war and get freedom. They were on the orbit of the Soviet Union. And by the moment in which the Soviet Union breaks, they have the possibility for the first time 
to believe that they have a country and a nation free. And now they are probably under the idea, under the sentiment, that to be in the European Union limits their capability to be a nation or to be a state. And they have this reflection, which is done by two or three countries, uh, particularly from this part of Europe. And I think that they will come to the conclusion that, in any case, it's much better to be in than to be out. And if you look economical, for instance, take Poland. Poland, from the moment in which uh, they enter into the European Union, the economic development has been extraordinary. And to leave the European Union probably will make their economic life much more difficult. So how does, maybe this is exemplified in the case of Poland and Hungary, but elsewhere too, how does the rising nationalism and populism that we've seen Mm -hmm. in many European countries and in the United States as well, how does that collide with continued integration? It is true that... uh, the world after the process of globalization in which we are still involved and the consequences of that plus the economic crisis plus all the changes, profound changes uh, that IT has brought to our societies. It is true that uh, it seems that a sentiment of uh, identity is at question. And this sentiment of identity or lack of identity calls to national appeals or nationalist appeals. I think that history has proven that that is a wrong approach. And I think that this will not last for a long period of time. I think that we have to go back to understand the level of interrelation that today exists, and that is very difficult to break. I mean, because when we talk about the globalization is uh, a level of globalization which uh, was uh, never known at the level that we have today because we have globalized the production of the woods. Not only the final product, but the value chain is global. And therefore, the interdependence is much, much, much deeper than before. You made a very interesting observation. I'm sure it's not new to most people, but it was an interesting observation to me in one of your recent articles about globalization. And you made the point that the very real benefits of globalization have been felt mostly by people in developing countries. A lot of millions of people being lifted out of extreme poverty. Those kinds of very tangible benefits maybe haven't been felt as much by people in developed countries, such as in Europe, such as in the United States, where people feel like their wages have stagnated, maybe they're being left behind by globalization. Can you talk about that force and how it impacts further integration. Now, what we have to recognize is that globalization in some parts of the world has had winners and losers. In particular, the losers are the middle classes and the winners have been the lower classes of the developing countries. And that can be corrected politically. That can be corrected with measures that can be global and others that have to be national still. But I don't think that this is a sufficient criticism to deny the globalization is a good thing. And that's what I defend. And I think that we have to be aware that in the societies like Europeans and, and the United States developed countries, the middle classes are suffering in a way losers of globalization. But uh, I think that that can be changed by 
doing different politics uh, economically and particularly economically. I think that is not impossible and therefore I think that the benefits of globalization uh, are so evident, so clear that the globalization process will continue. Maybe we will be done in a slower manner. I mean, a lot has been done already, but uh, I don't think that globalization is very difficult to be stopped. I do want to spend some time with you on the politics in various countries in the European Union, but first let's talk about security and defense issues in Europe. We've been hearing a lot about President Trump's views on NATO and NATO country spending, and there are a lot of other issues related to that. What would you say is the most important security issue for the European Union and for Europe generally? Well, the security in the European Union, the problems of today uh, are internal and external security. I've seen that uh, we have external security problems in uh, the other side of the Mediterranean or looking into Ukraine, etc. But uh, we are seeing also that because of the problems outside, they have consequences inside. For instance, the terrorist attacks in capitals of the European Union is, is evident. Let me put it this way. The internal external security is a continuum. You cannot separate internal and external. Therefore, you have to look at the security of the European Union, both internally and externally, from uh, from the top. Understand the dynamics between the internal and the external. And therefore, to ask for the increases in the military matters is important, but it's also important to, to spend money on the internal component of the security and try to make this continuum in a manner that is uh, much more efficient than it used to be. This is the way in which I look at the security in the European Union, and for that, the European Union has to be, in the matters concerning security, more integrated. Otherwise, it will be much more expensive to do it, to do it nationally, and probably much more inefficient. I mean, the borders and security, all these things are really have to be taken in a completely different manner than we are taking now, so with this continuum of security, internal and external. That is what I hope that it will be decided after we finalize this period of electoral in the year 2017. Can you talk for a minute about the relationship between NATO and the European Defense Agency? I'm not entirely sure how those two relate to each other. Well, it is two completely different levels. Mm -hmm. NATO is an alliance with an end, which is to defend the country's and through the Article 5, the security, collective security. And the agency is an agency that tries to get the outmost of the cooperation among the different countries in matters pertaining to defense, for instance, industry, technologies, etc. And that, at the end, will be beneficial for everybody, beneficial for Europe and beneficial for NATO, because the more sophisticated are the members of NATO, the better will be NATO as a whole. So on Russia... That is on a lot of people's minds these days. And you mentioned Russia and Ukraine. We also know that Russia, I believe, half of its trade is with Europe. So how do you see Russia vis-a-vis the European Union? And you know, what is its stance on Europe? Does it see Europe as a trading partner, as a strategic rival? How do you think about Russia? I think that the European Union looks at Russia as part of the continent, 
Russia geographically is going to be part of the continent, and uh, therefore uh, we have to try to get uh, a relationship with Russia, which is of a neighbor. For the United States, the relation with Russia are not of a neighbor, but political competitor in the Cold War, and the two most important nuclear powers. But for us, it's more a, a country, important country, a big country, with whom we have to have relations for many, many reasons. For neighborhood, for energy matters, for instance. We have uh, our supply of energy fundamentally from Russia. And it's difficult to maintain that type of positive relationship. But this is the objective that uh, we should have. Now, that doesn't mean that uh, we have to let Russia do whatever we want in the continent. And we have to construct a solid relationship, but respecting the principles that fair competition in the continent has. Therefore, for us, Russia is, is, as I said before, a very important country. But uh, we have also to not to let uh, Russia believe that uh, the continent uh, is going to be uh, unresponsive to problems that Russia creates in our neighborhood. But again, the objective has to be to have good relations with Russia. Let's turn our attention now to politics in specific countries throughout Europe. We've talked about the rise of populism, the rise of nationalism in some European countries and its impact on continued European integration. The Netherlands recently had an election in which the nationalist candidate lost. Were you encouraged in terms of European integration by that outcome in the Dutch election? Well, the Dutch elections have been important because uh, it was a tendency, uh, a way of thinking that uh, populists uh, were winning. And that uh, elections in a very complicated country, they have shown that the classical political forces have won. And that is good news. Good news for uh, the Netherlands and good news for Europe as a whole. So these elections have been important in a year, 2017, in which uh, a lot of elections are going to take place. So the beginning has been, in a way, uh, better than many people thought they were going to be. So we have to be happy about that, as I said, not only for the citizens of the Netherlands, but Europe as a whole. The next big election, as of the time of this taping, is the national election, the presidential election in France. It's a two-round election, but nationalist, populist candidate Marine Le Pen is expected to make it at least as far as the second and final round. What happens in terms of European integration, the European Union, if Marine Le Pen and the National Front, her party, does win the presidential election in France? If Le Pen will win the elections in France and become the president of France, that would be very bad news. Very bad news for France and very bad news for the European Union. The European Union is based, in a way, in a good relationship between France and Germany. That were the two original countries that started to think about the European Union. And I don't think that Le Pen president could have that solid relationship with Germany or Germany with France. So therefore, the scenario will be very, very dramatic from my point of view. Remember that, again, the position of Le Pen will be to take uh, France, at least outside the Eurozone, at least. It may be also to take it outside of the European Union. So the disruption of that uh, victory by Le Pen will be dramatic for the European Union. Now, looking ahead, there are British elections, snap elections called by the prime minister, I think, in June. But maybe more important, German elections are in the fall. 
what would be the best outcomes for the European Union in those two cases? On the British election, which had been a, a surprise for many people, they call it these snap elections. I think that what the Prime Minister wants is to get a much more clear mandate from the people in order to get the negotiations for the Brexit. But who knows? It's a second opportunity after the referendum. It may be that people have changed or adapted to what are the consequences of the referendum, and it would be surprises. But I think that the idea of calling for these elections is to have a much more clear mandate for her to chair the prime ministership during the negotiations. And in Germany, Angela Merkel has been kind of a central pillar of the European Union during her chancellorship, and she and her party are up for re-election. I think in one of the states of Germany, there was her opposition, a more nationalist party, is making progress. But at the national level in Germany, what do you see as the important outcome in the German elections? Well, the German elections, the competition will be fundamentally between the party of Madame Merkel and the party of the Social Democrats. The Christian Democrats will maintain the candidate. Angela Merkel will be the candidate. But the Social Democrats is a new leader. I think it's going to perform better than in the last election. So I don't see a a fundamental change because both parties, uh, in relation to Europe, they have the same program, basically the same concept. And I think the new political party that is anti-European I think they will diminish their, their votes. So I think that we will have uh, Germany, which is in any case, whoever is the winner, pro-European in the same direction that we have been before. One more very important country to Europe, it's a NATO member, Turkey. It recently had a referendum in which President Erdogan seems to have taken on even more powers. And, and you know, Turkey straddles Europe and Asia. It's an important NATO ally. How do you see that outcome of the Turkish referendum impacting the NATO alliance in Europe more generally? That's a very good question and uh, very difficult to answer uh, in two words. I hope very much that Turkey will continue to have a relation with the European Union and continue to be a member of NATO. But it's true that the evolution of Turkey after the victories of uh, President Erdogan and the change of the constitution which is going to him is a problem or maybe a problem. We have to see how the situation evolves but uh, it is true that we are going to live in a situation which is new of a country going in the direction of governments which are less uh, formally democratic and really democratic. The situation today, uh, as you know, the people Uh, in jail, uh, lack of freedoms and all that. And it's very worrisome because, again, Turkey is a very important uh, country for us Europeans, but also, as you said, uh, for for the alliance. So let's just turn our attention back for just a second to Europe and the United States. Again, the new Trump administration. What do you see as the challenges and the opportunities in the relationship between Washington and the European Union? Mm -hmm. Well, it's very difficult to know today. Remember that uh, President Trump is not uh, very keen on the European Union. He has supported the Brexit, for instance, uh, which is in a way supporting the breaking of the European Union. 
But again, the relationship, economic and political and, uh, and values uh, are profound and uh, it will be maintained, no doubt about that. It will go through ups and downs and particular issues, but the core of the relationship will be maintained without any doubt from my perspective. Well, let's end this conversation this way. I want to ask you this question. Are you optimistic about the future of European integration? Mm, optimism, pessimism is a relative concept. Are uh, you more optimistic than pessimistic? I think that the European Union will continue to be an important player in the world uh, in which we live. And I hope that uh, the relationship between the European Union as a whole and the United States will be maintained and deepen if possible. And I hope that the European Union will be also an important player with uh, in this globalized world with countries that emerge like China or India or African Union, etc. So I believe that this is the tendency in which we are probably at a speed that will be less uh, big than, than before, but in the same direction. I don't think the direction is going to change. The speed at which uh, the, we travel may change, but not sense of direction. Well, Dr. Javier Solana, I want to thank you for sharing your time and expertise with our podcast today. Thank you very much to you. You can learn more about Javier Solana and find links to all of his writings on our website at brookings.edu. Next up, Foreign Policy Vice President and Director Bruce Jones talks with Bill Finan about his new book. In The Marshall Plan and the Shaping of American Strategy, Jones explores how the United States helped restore a Europe battered by World War II and created the foundation for the post-war international order. Thanks, Fred, for that introduction. And thanks, Bruce, for dropping by today. Thanks for having me. Your new book is The Marshall Plan and the Shaping of American Strategy. I know the book was originally planned around the celebration of the Brookings Institution's 100th anniversary and also to mark the 70th anniversary of the Marshall Plan's announcement in 1947. But it now has an especially important resonance after the November 2016 presidential election. But we'll come back to that. I wanted to begin by asking you the central basic question. What was the Marshall Plan? I'm going to answer the question in two parts. In the narrow sense, what the Marshall Plan was was a a strategy for economic and political reconstruction of Europe after the devastation of the Second World War. It was conceptualized by Secretary of State Marshall and authorized by Congress. It was a massive infusion of economic aid to the allies, the Western democracies that have been allies to the United States in the Second World War. Can you give a sense of how large that yeah. economic aid was? Um, well, just to put a single data point on it, 12 percent of government spending in the first year of the Marshall Plan. So we think about today, we have a hard time getting wow. Congress to authorize 1 percent of, of government spending for mm-hmm. aid and the State Department. 12 percent of government spending in 47, 48, 49 was the Marshall Plan. It's just an, an extraordinarily huge act action by the United States to shore up the economies of Europe and to shore up the politics of Europe. And I think that's the essential point is that this was at a moment in time where there was the beginnings of the post-war struggle between the Soviets and the United States over who would shape the future of Europe. 
and the United States saw a vital interest in shoring up the democratic actors in Western Europe and the economic assistance package was very much motivated by that political consideration. This plan also was at the initiative of Senator Arthur Vandenberg, who had been an isolationist, but he managed to move it through Congress and it was a divided Congress at the time. It, was, it took a lot right. of political and work. The administration of the day, as you can imagine, did a lot of heavy lifting to move Congress in that direction, partly by getting out of Washington. Another lesson for today, they spent a lot of time on the road talking to people in different constituencies across the country about the importance of the issue. It's also, it was probably to, and this is a little bit unfair to say, but it was probably also the first Oh, not the first, but an iteration of what we would today call fake news hmm. uh, in the sense that the authors of the plan and the administration at the time realized that in order to mobilize the American public and Congress around this, they were going to have to do what they called making clearer than the truth the nature of the Soviet threat. In that other was the words, expression. They were, yeah, that was the expression, <laughs> clearer than the truth. The truth was subtle, complicated, long-term. They understood that to mobilize the American public in Congress, they were going to have to make it stark and clear and present. And so they spent a lot of time talking about the kind of present threat of mm -hmm. Soviet expansion. And uh, it was a deliberate effort to kind of mobilize support against the plan. Can you describe the uh, political and economic landscape of Europe at the moment of the Marshall Plan's announcement? Yeah, well, remember that this is after five years of fighting, six years of fighting in some cases on the continent. So there's a huge amount of physical devastation. And these are all economies that had been devastated. I mean, their productive capacity had been turned towards the war effort or otherwise decimated. So you had a huge economic challenge to kind of revitalize European industry, physically restore European infrastructure, bridges, roads, factories, etc. And you had a very tense political moment where the established democratic parties, I don't mean capital D, but small d democratic parties were largely in office, but were coming under a lot of pressure from parties that were uh, affiliated with, uh, or if not affiliated with, had associations with the uh, communist parties. And there was a fear that you would see, because of the economic malaise, because of the unemployment levels, etc., that you would see uh, communist parties taking office in Italy, France, Germany, etc. And so it was really that sort of very tense political landscape where you had the kind of democratic forces hanging on under pressure from communist-affiliated forces that was really the kind of political landscape that the administration confronted. One thing that I didn't realize about the Marshall Plan until I was reading the introduction by Strobe Talbot is that the plan was a grand bargain in the sense that it was to include Russia, the Soviet Union at that moment, and Eastern Europe. Was that a feint or was that really meant to happen that the plan was also enveloped those countries? Well, there was a debate about it, but there's an important prior step, and this is part of what interested me in these issues. There had been a plan prior to the Marshall Plan, and it was a UN plan. There's a UN plan for the economic reconstruction of Europe, and an agency was established, the UN Relief and Reconstruction Agencies, to mobilize support and to do the economic work and the reconstruction work. And that was a mechanism that included the Soviets. What began to happen in 45 and 46, as the negotiations over this got underway, is it began to be clear that the United States and the Soviets were not going to be able to reach common ground over how the plan should proceed, the political principles of the economic reconstruction package in the East European cases. It was pretty clearly understood that in Western Europe mm -hmm. that was a U.S. call. But in the Eastern European cases, the Soviets had to be involved and they couldn't find common ground. That was the basis against which Marshall began articulating this alternative where instead of going through the UN, the United States would do it itself. And it's part of a broader collapse in a sense of a notion 
a post-war notion of great powers cooperation, of the notion of the four policemen, the Soviets, Americans, the British, and the Chinese, who was sort of together organized international security. That begins to break down in 46, and you have a, a shift towards what we then talk about as the West, the United States, and the core European actors, starting with the Marshall Plan and ending up in NATO. How did the Brookings Institution become involved in the drafting of the plan? So Senator Vandenberg, who was at the time chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, once he decided to commit himself to this plan, realized that they didn't have a plan. They had a sketch. They had an Mm -hmm. idea. And he called the president of Brookings at the time and said, we need to turn this idea into a plan. And the president, Moulton, turned to the director of international studies and said to him, you have to develop this thing. And so all of the scholars in the International Studies Program at Brookings dropped everything else they were doing and for 30 days worked on nothing but this and drafted the core elements of what became the Marshall Plan in its sort of operational sense for Senator Vandenberg. It was a 20-page paper that outlined all the key elements in Mm -hmm. terms of how it would be organized, who would lead it, what the terms would be, what the conditions would be, and that became the kind of core of the operational documents that are what we now think of as the Marshall Plan itself. And another thing I found out from the book, too, is that this wasn't the only major post-war international institution that Brookings had a hand in. Also, the framing of the United Nations was something that had its origins with a Brookings scholar, too. That's right, yeah. And there were people at Brookings who had done some of the initial conceptualization of what became the United Nations and were drafted into the effort at Dumbarton Oaks to help articulate that and to put language to paper on what became the Treaty of San Francisco. The book ends with an essay by you and Will Marlin that frames the Marshall Plan, its origins and what it means for today. And your essay paints a disturbing picture of America and the world as of 2017. There is, you write, political and conceptual uncertainty about its role. What are those uncertainties? I think we saw those brought very much to life during the last election. I wrote that before the November 16 election, but we already had seen the beginnings or the deepening of a debate in the United States about whether or not it was still the case that the United States should be the the principal lift carrier, it's not a good phrase, but the principal sort of the burden carrier Mm -hmm. of of the mechanisms of international security. Should we still continue to have a large international security presence in Asia? Should we still continue to pay a large portion of the security burden of Europe? Should we be preoccupied by security and stability in the Middle East? Or were we doing far too much and and we should sort of pull back and come home? And at the same time, of course, you have other powers, China, India, Brazil, Russia, et cetera, whose capacity has grown pretty considerably over the last decade. We're much more assertive on the global stage now. So you have both an internal domestic contestation over the question of whether or not the United States should pay the price of organizing international security and putting troops and other security assets abroad to help stabilize certain regions. And you have an international contestation over whether or not other actors want the United States to play that role. In the last quarter century, we've been in a space where there was no real contender, there was no real opposition to that in a geopolitical sense. But now there's genuine opposition to that in geopolitical terms and a deep debate internally. Mm -hmm. And that brings me back to the beginning of our conversation. This year marks, as I said, the 70th anniversary of the Marshall Plan. Yet, as you write in your concluding essay to the book, there's a new administration in Washington that appears to be aimed at destroying the very foundations on which that plan was built. Now that we have the first 100 days of the Trump presidency behind us, do you still think that's the case? We've seen... The team around Donald Trump substantially moderate his rhetoric 
on NATO, which is the kind of core of the doubt that I had about his his worldview. He clearly has deep doubts about NATO. The people around him don't. Uh, that's everybody from Vice President Pence to Tillerson to Mattis to McMaster, et cetera. As the Secretary of State and the Secretary of Defense. Exactly. And so the people around him, I think, have moderated his rhetoric. Whether they've moderated his instincts, I don't know. But I think having a president who does not clearly believe in the merits of NATO and the merits of an American commitment to a democratic Europe, irrespective of the rhetoric, is deepening the doubts that our mm-hmm. allies have about our reliability. And that's weakening the transatlantic tie, which has been the backbone of international order for 70 years with all its warts and flaws. So I am concerned about that. At the same time, Trump isn't wrong when he says the United States carries too much of a burden on this and Europe doesn't do enough. That's clearly true. I like to point out to people that when we're thinking about Russia, Russia is a $1 trillion economy. It's smaller than Italy. It's four times smaller than Germany. It's three times smaller than France. It's three times smaller than Britain. Europe as a whole is a $17 trillion entity. So it's a perfectly valid question Mm. why it is that Europe can't do the bulk of the lift in terms of defending itself against Russia Mm -hmm. and why the United States still has to pay a large share of that burden. I think that's a perfectly legitimate question. I would put it even more starkly than the terms in which this gets discussed. So he's not wrong to pose that question. But that's different than saying that the United States doesn't have an interest in a democratic Mm -hmm. Europe. And unfortunately, I think in his rhetoric, he conflates those two things pretty substantially. And that's what the Marshall Plan was about, too. It was was all about. And so with that, we'll end here. And thanks, Bruce, for coming by today to talk about the new book. Thanks for having me. Hey, listeners, want to ask an expert a question? You can by sending an email to me at bcp at brookings.edu. If you attach an audio file, I'll play it on the air. And I'll get an expert to answer and include it in an upcoming episode. Thanks to all of you who have sent in questions already. And that does it for this edition of the Brookings Cafeteria, brought to you by the Brookings Podcast Network. Follow us on Twitter at Policy Podcasts. My thanks to audio engineer and producer Gaston Ribeiro, with assistance from Mark Holscher. Vanessa Sauter is the producer. Bill Finan does the book interviews. And design and web support comes from Jessica Pavone, Eric Abalahin, and Rebecca Weiser. And thanks to David Nassar and Richard Fawal for their support. You can subscribe to the Brookings Cafeteria on iTunes and listen to it in all the usual places. Visit us online at brookings.edu. Until next time, I'm Fred Dews.